0: in a series of six lectures for the International Catholic University. My name is Father Romanus Cesario and I teach moral theology here at St. John's Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts. The newly restored chapel of St. John Seminary that was decorated at the end of the 19th century by an Italian artist working in Boston during that period. There is in the apse of the Romanesque chapel a representation of Pentecost and there we see the Blessed Virgin Mary surrounded by the twelve apostles, each illumined by the parted tongues of fire that represent the gift of the holy spirit that comes into the church into the world and after christ has returned to the father in the mystery of the ascension and which establishes now for all time an instrument of divine communication which we call the communion of the Church. I refer to that image at the beginning of this second lecture in order to remind the students that the instruction that is being given in these lectures is one that derives its authority and indeed receives its specific theological shape from the truths taught by Christ, communicated to the apostles, and through the power and efficacy of the Holy Spirit are maintained in the world and will be for all time through the instrumentality of the teaching church. Perhaps there is no better example of how it is that the teaching church helps us to understand what is specific about the human reality than when we seek to answer the fundamental question that philosophers are wont to pose for themselves and to answer, namely, what is man? In this lecture, then, we will consider what might be called pre-ethical considerations for moral theology, and specifically, anthropological considerations. For many philosophers and others who ask themselves the question, what is man? The task that such a question imposes is one that is daunting and at times surrenders only partial responses or answers. On the other hand, the church as the Catechism of the Catholic Church recently put it, presents herself as a master of humanity. The Church is a master of what it means to be human. This is a tremendous claim, one no philosopher should make, and hardly any right-thinking person would dare to make. Why is it that the Church can say to the world that she is a master of humanity? It is, of course, because she recognizes herself as a deposit, or possessing, a deposit of faith. She recognizes and knows herself to be an instrument of divine revelation for the world and that divine revelation includes instruction, includes a teaching about the human person in what is most specifically human, that is to say the person's knowing and loving. The church is a master of humanity because she knows how the human person achieves perfection as a human being, as a knower and a lover. It goes without saying that the church makes no claim to be a master of human biology. That's a science that belongs to the doctor, that's a science that belongs to the biologist, that's a useful and indispensable science for our human well-being. But she does make the claim to be the master of humanity because it is not the case that the human person can be treated exhaustively by the biologist or, for that matter, by any physical scientist or scientist who limits Emma herself to the data that matter surrenders. And the reason for that is that the church knows that what makes the human person specific, different, and of surpassing value is that God has shared something of his very own life with man and that sharing or participation is the human soul. We know that the Church always refers to human conception and to the coetal act which brings it about as the procreative act. Secular theorists are wont to speak about human reproduction, with the harsh and mechanist overtones that the word reproducing possesses. But the church knows that in the mystery of the conception and birth of a new human being there is something that's far greater and more mysterious and more wonderful that goes on and it has nothing to do with reproducing, rather the husband and wife, man and woman, come together in a union that allows them to participate in an extraordinary and marvelous way in what only God can do, create new life. Their action then is procreative because in supplying the matter necessary to bring about the human body, husband and wife, at the moment of the union of sperm and egg, as it were, beg God, who it is judged by the church at that moment, infuses a human soul created for that body, which soul is the ground and root of human dignity. It is what gives to the parents, husband and wife I should say, to the spouses their vocation as parents from that moment on, the moment of conception, they are not reproducers or procreators even, at that moment they are parents, parents of a new life, innocent new life, that they welcome into their own love and in the body of the mother into their lives. They cherish it and nurture it and in God's providence at the birth of the child educate and rear this new human being in the ways of God and man. Is it any wonder then that the anthropology that undergirds the church's instruction about human life and about human comportment is called the anthropology of the imago, the anthropology, the image of God. You all recognize the phrase. It comes from the book of Genesis. It is the way in which the Old Testament announces to us what is different about the creature man. God had created the firmaments of the heaven. He had divided the waters. He had made the dry land appear. He had populated the seas with fishes and the land with crawling creatures and the sky with flying creatures. He had made vegetation of every sort. He had given his perfective wisdom to everything that he had made, but he called none of those things his image. When, however, it came to create the human creature, then God says, let us make man, let us make him in our image, In the image of God, he created him. And this text from Genesis has left its mark on every uh, generation of Christian theologian from the earliest patristic authors through the scholastic authors of the Middle Ages. And it remains today the preferred and indeed preeminent description for the human creature that governs the church's understanding about that creature, namely, man is made in the image of God. I like to use or retain, I should say, the Latin imago because it gives me the opportunity to refer to the human person in a way that is convenient and at the same time reminds us that this is not simply another creature that we're talking about. This is not for that matter what we know about the human person from the resources of all the human sciences. No, we are talking now about that creature which is made in God's very own image. This creature is Imago. I've been giving these lectures for a number of years. I remember at one point in time, to my great surprise, that after a summer course of seminarians, religious lay people, there appeared at the end for the final lecture a classroom of 25 people in black sweatshirts, each of whom had written in white imago. So there is a great deal of significance to this theological way of referring to the human creature. Of referring to man, and I want to say a word if you permit me about the use of the word man. The English language has a word that allows it to speak about the individual of the human race, the individual of the species. That word is man, It's, to some extent, unfortunate today when some of our sensitivities urge us to look for words that are more inclusive and not exclusive. And were another word available, we certainly would like to use that word, provided everyone knew that man here referred to an individual of the human race to an individual instance of human nature. Some might argue, well, why can't you just say person? The reason for that is, of course, that the Christian tradition in many places makes a point of distinguishing between person and nature. The Christian theologian must do that in the Trinity, the Christian theologian must do that in Christology. Indeed, the Christian theologian probably must do it in the big area of moral or political philosophy and theology. And the moral theologian also has to do it in order to point out or to remind, I should say, his audience that when we speak about the human person, we are speaking about the fully actualized individual with all of his or her capacities of knowledge and love engaged in some way that makes out of this creature now what we have come to understand when we say she or he is a good person. But the doctrine of the image, indeed the doctrine of creation, obliges us to accept the fact that the divine image, if you will, is inscribed more deeply into the human creature than what his or her activities, indeed his or her perfections, can account for. What God creates in creating man is a particular kind of creature, a creature whose capacities, especially his spiritual capacities, but also indeed as John Paul II has taught us, indeed even his bodily structure, bears a resemblance or likeness to the divine nature itself, that is to say to God. And that resemblance is there in the very fiber of our being and it remains there at some time, whether we bring that nature to its perfection, which is the happiness of the saints, or, God forbid, fall short of that perfection, which is the punishment of the lost, the fact remains that the image is never effaced. The image is never destroyed. The image is never lost, because God has created us, and as St. Augustine, in what is arguably the best-known Christian expression outside of the canonical scriptures, he has made us for himself, and our hearts, that is, every man's heart, is restless until it rests in God. During the course of these lectures, I will alternately refer to imago, sometimes to man, and at other moments I will use the expression the human person. Hopefully I will use each of those terms in a context that suits the specific theological point that's being made. And So when I talk about man as knowing and loving and choosing, I will speak about the human person, he or she, because persons are either male or female. But when I want to make a point about the human nature that God has created and what it is that is essential to the perfection of that nature, I will most often use the term, retain the term man for the sake of clarity but also for the sake of making it very, very clear that what we are talking about at this point as it were sinks down to the level of nature and is constitutive of what we might call human beingness. At other times, especially when I'm talking about man's high destiny, man's call for beatific fellowship or communion with God. I will use the expression the imago to make it clear that this creature, the human creature, the human person, man, is created in the image and likeness of God and because of that image and likeness, enjoys the capacity for free activity, enjoys the capacity to learn about God, and above all enjoys the call to live with God forever. I think you will understand one of the reasons why I have kept the language of man and not abandoned it completely for the language of human person when we consider the fact that the doctrine of the imago, imago dei, image of God, is one that caused theologians from the earliest centuries of the Church to consider the various destinies, the various kinds of lives that men live. They recognized, in short, that some were saints and some were sinners. They recognized that in some the image came to life in a way that was particularly worthy of note, remarkable if you will, whereas in others the image became tarnished, hidden, encrusted, as it were, fell out of view and did so precisely because the kinds of lives those persons were living, obfuscated and tarnished the image of God rather than illuminating it and making it shine and sparkle. And so the theologians in the course of time recognized that one had to consider the image in at least three different ways. First of all, the image that is imprinted on every human being that God has created what one might call the image of nature. This simply means what Genesis means, that there is not a human being on the face of this earth who is not created ad imaginum Dei after the image of God. There is not a human being on the face of the earth who does not bear the divine resemblance which we call an image. That divine resemblance itself has its origin in the blessed Trinity. Those of you that may have not seen the first lecture or have not used it for some time, should know that the symbol for the trinity is the triangle with the circle. And Christian theology has argued that this likeness is a likeness that is especially attributable to the second divine person whose name within the trinity is the Logos, the Word, or the Son. It is, of course, the second divine person who comes into our world, born of the Virgin Mary, who enjoys two generations, the eternal generation from the Father before all ages, co-eternal, light from light, God from God, true God from true God, but also a birth in time for us, for us men and for our salvation, it is the second person in God, the Logos Son. You will recall the beginning of St. John's Gospel where we have the great hymn to the Logos, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The theologians recognize that the second person of the Blessed Trinity is the one to whom the imaging of the human creature can be attributed. By attributed, I mean not that it is the image of one person, but rather the image of the Triune God. And yet there is some reason to remark upon the similarity or the appropriateness St. Thomas even calls this appropriations, the appropriateness of referring the imago Dei to the second divine person precisely because logos, in addition to being translated as word, also connotes pattern. Thus it is that man is created after the divine pattern, a pattern that, again, the Christian tradition attributes to the Divine Son one of, you can see why they came to that conclusion, of course, because it is the Son who becomes incarnate, and as I said at the end of the first session, becomes our way and our truth and our life, and since it is that it is Christ who shows us the way, who is our truth, who is our life, then the tradition, and theologians in particular, argued that it is the second in God who possesses, if you will, the pattern that explains this creature that we call man. This connection between the Blessed Trinity and the human creature, imago, is the indispensable starting point for all moral theology. It is because we are created in the image of God that in the end, this may come as a surprise to some of my listeners, truth to be told, we have no choice but to perfect that image. That statement needs some qualification as those of you who are expert in moral philosophy and theology recognize, and yet I insist upon it because I believe it's a needed corrective to prevailing views about human autonomy and human uniqueness and human individuality, prevalent especially since, if you will, the enlightenment, that have so blinded our culture to recognizing the dependency that the human creature has upon God and in his very being, or to put it simply, simply as man. Most people, hearing it said, man is created after the image of God, man is created in the image of God, would simply conclude almost immediately that that was a particular religious belief of Christians, perhaps of some Christians. Edifying, consoling perhaps, touching even, but surely not an exhaustive claim about every creature on the planet Earth, and surely not a claim upon which certain kinds of moral obligations or moral truths are to be built. And yet that is precisely the purpose for including within a series on moral theology, talk about the image, talk about anthropology, talk about pre-ethical considerations to moral theology, because the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, that it is precisely because God has created us in his image that we are able to develop a science of moral theology and that that moral theology can point us to a kind of fulfillment or perfection or destiny that surpasses anything available in this world. Now some of you at this point may be saying, why is this image called the image of nature, since it seems to require so much theological argument to support its existence. Don't you have to believe that Genesis is inspired, for example, in order to accept this? Don't you have to accept that the early Christian theologians, the fathers of the church, had something worthwhile to say? And what they had to say is still worthwhile. Or perhaps isn't this something that only a Thomist or a medievalist can appreciate Because that's the way the medieval theologians were wont to begin their discussions of moral theology. Not only Aquinas, Scotus, Peter the Lombard. And the answer to that question is, yes it is true this is a theological discussion. No, it is not true that it requires one to accept the authority of all of the people that I have just mentioned. And yes, it is true that this should be called the image of nature, because it is a statement about how things are. It also explains why the theologians distinguish the image of nature from the image of grace. They make that distinction because they recognized that for the imago to come to full life and for the imago to fulfill completely the New Testament injunctions for a good and happy and love-filled life, and surely for the imago to reach that destiny that surpasses anything available in this world. Nature is not enough. For that matter, the creative action of God, which alone explains why any thing of nature exists and indeed why anything of nature continues to exist, is not enough. What brings the Imago to full life is that experience of divine friendship communicated through Christ and only through Christ that we are accustomed and the tradition has ample warrant for us to be so accustomed to call grace. Grazia. The word grace has a simple etymology. It comes from the Latin word for free, gratis. And it is the simple affirmation that is found on every page of the New Testament that what God gives to us in Christ he does freely, he does because he is good, not because we are. He gives as a father gives to his children, he gives graciously, we might say in English, lavishly, which is why the word grace, in addition to connoting a free bestowal, also connotes a sort of perfection of endowments, of gifts, a perfection of graces, we would say, so that the soul becomes, and we still have these expressions in English, graced, the person becomes graceful, gracious, all of which now is the feeble attempt of human language to find an expression that reaches out and encompasses everything that it means to be a friend of God. It's very difficult for the theologian to talk about the divine friendship. and The reason for that is that frequently the theologian has to talk about the divine friendship in the way that a doctor who is himself sick talks about the conditions of health. He may know that the patient he's treating possesses those conditions better than he himself does. Yet he knows more about what makes a healthy person. And so us poor moral theologians have to recognize that we're in the awkward position at times of talking about a life that the saints exemplify better than those of us moral theologians who have not quite reached that level of sanctification or that status of divine. Friendship which we reserve for the saints. And yet someone must speak about it, although we are grateful that within the Church of Christ, there are saints to teach us, to exemplify for us, to witness, we would say today, to the reality of divine grace present in the world. I began this lecture by pointing to the picture that is in the apse of the Chapel of St. John Seminary. Over the apse there is inserted another image which you will see on your television or internet screen. It is an image taken from the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, traditionally also ascribed to Saint John the Evangelist, Saint John the Divine, the theologian who instructed about the divine mysteries. And this scene is of the elders of the Apocalypse casting down their golden crowns before the throne of the Lamb. This is Saint John's vision of the number of the elect mystical numbers that represent all those saved by the blood of the Lamb. You will be reminded that talking about the life of grace, distinguishing between nature and grace, is the task that falls to some theologians in the church and a task that the moral theologian must be especially attentive to But in the end, the mystery of the image of nature and the image of grace by no means belongs to any theologian, by no means is limited to the work of some thinkers within the church, although please God, those of us who do do that thinking are also numbered among the saints. But it is to remind you that these mysteries are mysteries that belong to the whole church, to all of her members. Surely it is not a prerogative of clerics. We see it however, that is to say this mystery lived especially in the consecrated life or religious life. One thinks of the many religious women, consecrated women who by their vows of poverty and chastity and obedience are special images of this world of divine grace but we also think of the number of the saints, the vast number of the saints, the largest number of the saints the countless men and women many of them fathers and mothers, spouses, husbands and wives who by their living out of the mystery of the Christian family, living it out in conformity to the truth of the Gospel, realize in a way that is perhaps the least noted but the most spectacular expression of the distinction between the image of nature and the image of grace, precisely because We see in the Christian family, in mother and father and in child, children, the fulfillment of the divine promise that God makes when he creates man and enjoins upon the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, to dominate it, and to transform it. To transform it into a world of divine fellowship that we know is made possible in our sin-marked history only because of the incarnation of the Son of God, only because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. These considerations some of you at this point might be thinking are far afield of a lecture in moral theology. If you are thinking that, may I invite you to stop thinking it because in a word nothing perhaps is more essential to a discussion of moral theology than to know that the human creature, man, is created in the image of God. Nothing is more essential to know that being created in the image of God, man is set upon a path or a way, sometimes I use the word trajectory, which has some mechanistic overtones that are not as, perhaps, correct as they should be, as I would like, but The fact remains that this image is a dynamic reality, which is to say it is ordered to action. And it is ordered to action meant to achieve a specific purpose or end That's why the confession of faith that we make at every mass, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, is so important for the moral theologian because we must know that the doctrine of the image is not only a doctrine of man's origins, it is also a doctrine about man's completion. That is why when you see the image from St. John's Seminary of the Apocalypse, that vision that St. John had of the fulfillment of all things of the saints in perpetual adoration and praise and thanksgiving before the throne of the Lamb, you will be reminded that moral theology is concerned about the beginnings. It is also concerned about the end. The end not so much as a reward, though there is a sense in which heaven is a reward, but the end in the sense of a perfection or completion of what it is that from all eternity God has ordained for us. And that is very simple to know. Christ himself reveals it significantly. He reveals it first to his disciples within the context of the Last Supper. I no longer call you servants, that is to say, creatures, that is to say, images of nature, for all creation is servant to the Lord, Christ says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Vos autem amicos vocavi. I have called you my friends. And when our Savior speaks those words, he speaks them not as one inviting a group of men, or women for that matter, into the company of human fellowship. He is not drawing to himself disciples after the manner of any human teacher, indeed for that matter of any other religious teacher, No, when the eternal Son of God become flesh, born of the Virgin Mary speaks those words, I have called you my friends. He announces to us the image of grace. He speaks those words as the incarnate son, the eternal son. He speaks them now as the one in whose image we have been created. He speaks those words as the incarnate Son of God, the incarnate Logos, so that we will know through the Apostles, through the Church, the way the dynamic way of divine friendship that leads us to communion with himself, with the Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, with a communion of love that will never end. The moral theologian must be concerned about the question, what is man? And he must give the answer to that question, the answer that God himself gives to us through divine revelation, and say that man is that creature created in the image of God. The moral theologian must be concerned to distinguish between the image of nature and the image of grace, because he knows that the full actualization and realization of the image is a work that God offers freely through his church to every man and woman, to every creature. The phrase of the Second Vatican Council, the universal call to holiness, surely is appropriate in this context. The moral theologian must be concerned about the image of nature and the image of grace because ultimately the moral theologian is concerned about the image of glory. That's a very poor graphic, you'll excuse me, but I feel comforted because I know at this point the technicians will again draw our attention to the apse of St. John's Seminary Chapel, and that we will see there together the image of Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit, the gift of God's truth communicated to the Church, and at the same time we'll see the image, the Apocalypse, the vision of the Apocalypse, the elders casting their crowns on the glassy sea before the image of the Lamb. And we will see the transition that is suggested by the placement of those paintings in the chapel, which is of course the movement from the image of grace lived within the church to the image of glory, which is another word for beatitude that eternal felicity and happiness that God alone does make possible and that God alone can provide for the creatures he has created. The moral theologian could not begin to say this is true and this is false. This is right and this is wrong this is good or this is bad, unless he or she is able to measure those claims against the truth of the divine image, the image of creation, the image of grace, and the image of glory. And that is why when you see the representation of Pentecost, you will understand the great significance of the artist's decision to place at the center of the Apostles the image of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We are taught that what the Church hopes to be, what each one of us, hopes to become, Mary already is we are taught that the graces that we confidently expect to receive from God to fulfill our destiny, Mary already possesses. And she possesses them as a mother, which is to say, as one who wants to give us everything that we need in order to realize the perfection of our godly image. I think it's possible to say that no moral theologian would want to talk about moral theology without talking about Mary.